Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that attempts to answer that most intriguing of all questions, just what draws people to this absurd game. For first-time listeners, a big welcome. My name's Rod Murray, and I'm your guide on these expeditions into the minds of golfers, a sometimes dark, though always interesting place where we meet everybody from world-class pros to lifelong duffers and every level of enthusiast in between. On this episode, we're going to delve not for the first time into the world of golf course architecture when we sit down with one of that profession's most respected proponents, Tom Doak. Doak's work around the world is both highly regarded and, for the most part, commercially successful, but neither of these are among his motivations when creating a golf course. So what does drive the 59-year-old? Stick around and we'll explore some of that after just a quick bit of administration. As the world continues to grapple with COVID-19, which incidentally won't be mentioned on this episode, as this interview took place in that world which will one day be known as pre-coronavirus. But since we're all locked inside, either voluntarily or by regulation, it's a great time to catch up on podcasts. Now, I know I would say this, but I am genuinely proud of our back catalogue here at The Thing About Golf, and I urge anybody who hasn't yet done so to take a wander around the archives. And in fact, even if you've heard all the episodes, maybe consider going back for a second helping. There's been some terrific stuff in there since we launched, and while some of the big-name guests have attracted the most attention, I reckon there's some hidden gold dust in some of the lesser-known names, like our very first interviewee, Sue Worcester, Sue might be the best amateur golfer you've never heard of, and our chat with her was one of my favourites. Also on my favourites list was the discussion we had with publisher Paul Daly, a true gentleman of the game and extremely interesting on the subject of golf courses and their design. You'll find all that, plus chats with Peter Lonard and John Huggin and Peter Senior and John Paramore, uh, all of that by heading to golfaustralia.com.au and clicking the podcast tab. You can also subscribe to the pod at that page or indeed by any of the myriad podcast apps that are available. Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts are the most popular. If you do that, we'll magically appear on your mobile device every time we release a new episode and you won't have to do a thing. Lastly, please feel free to get in touch if you've got requests or ideas for future guests, or even if you just want to throw some bouquets or brickbats. We, of course, prefer the former, but we are always open to the latter as well. You can reach me direct on Twitter at, at Rod underscore Mori, that's M for Mary O-R-R-I, where my DMs are open, so anyone can send me a private message. The show also has its own Twitter handle at, at ThingGolf, capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F, or you can find Golf Australia magazine on Facebook and send comments that way. If email's still your thing, we have one of those as well. It's golf at golfaustralia.com.au. Links to all of those communication methods can be found in the show notes. All right, let's get to today's guest. And what an intriguing character Tom Doak is. In the early days of his career, Doak was best known for his Confidential Guide, a book which featured some blunt and controversial takes on golf courses around the world. That was back in the 1990s, a period in golf course design where real estate development ruled and actual architecture was often a second consideration behind housing sales. Now, as economics began to impact that model, Doak and a handful of others with similar minimalist ideas about the game's playing field began to come into favour. These days, Doak's a celebrity in the subculture that is golf course architecture, and he's done courses in almost every corner of the globe. We were lucky enough to get an hour of his time during a recent visit to Australia for his annual Renaissance Cup, an event that brings together enthusiasts and industry types from all over the world at one of his many design projects. That's how it came to pass that I sat down with Doak in the 
Library of the National Golf Club on the Mornington Peninsula, where his recently opened Gunnamatta course was this year's host venue. A special thanks to the Nationals General Manager John Gayhan for allowing us the space to do this interview, which I hope that you'll find as enjoyable as I did. Well, Tom Doak, thanks for taking some time. Firstly, we appreciate that. We know how busy you are. Like a golf course routing, a podcast needs a starting point. Ours is the question, the th- what's the thing about golf? What's the thing about golf for Tom Doak? It's a big question. I just love to be outdoors. I mean, you know, when I was, when I was starting college, I was a pretty good math engineering student. And, you know, one semester of college, I just couldn't imagine sitting in an office working on all those problems for the rest of my life. And I, you know, I loved golf. I wasn't good enough to play golf for a living or anywhere close to it. But I was always interested in golf course architecture. And, and just that one semester of college, it was like, why I should seriously look at if I could pursue that for a living. I've discussed it with you, others have, so we won't go into the backstory of how you got into it and, and all those we've, sorts of things because it's been done times. a million times. We're here at the National Golf Club down on the Mornington Peninsula, the Gunnamatta course you just redid recently, it opened recently, but you're here for the Renaissance Cup. I'll get you to explain what the Renaissance Cup is in a minute, but we've just come down from upstairs and it strikes me that the Renaissance Cup isn't really about a cup. Is what's happening upstairs this week the thing about golf in some ways? People engaging with people about a topic they are passionate about. Yes. And, you know, I'm fortunate because, you know, I didn't grow up in the golf business at all. So the only reason I've been a success is because from the beginning, when I was writing letters to people asking for help, I got help from everywhere in the golf business because people are really passionate about it. And, you know, I sounded like a sincere and smart person and they wanted to help. So, you know, I would write letters to Pine Valley and Marion and the green chairman would say, yeah, you can come play with me and have a look around the golf course and take pictures of it. Um, and it's that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It, it really is. It's quite and, extraordinary. and the only reason it worked is because nobody else had done that at that point for whatever reason. Um, so, you know, all the all the young people that work for me now are doing the same thing or trying to do the same thing. And honestly, most even most of the really private clubs are really nice to them. But it's not, you know, it was a real novelty. I could just tell from the reaction I got back then that, you know, they'd not gotten a letter like that. Um, so, you know, we still to this day, we get the, the passionate and or the crazy people that just love everything about golf are sort of that's our crowd. And. Uh, so this event, you know, golf course rankings are way too important to everybody. And, you know, I say that as somebody who's benefited from them as much as anyone, because, you know, once I designed two or three of the best golf courses in the world, people took me a lot more seriously and I make a lot more money as a result. But it's still a bad process, or at least it's a very complicated process. And there's a lot of places where politics get involved. And But the hardest thing now is, you know, most of those people upstairs today, if they came on a golf trip to Australia, they would see 12 golf courses in nine days and go home. Mm -hmm. And even though they're all really interested and passionate, they'll have a hard time remembering in a year. So they, you know, their impression of Kingston Heath from this trip or, or St. Andrews Beach is a very limited impression of having played it one afternoon in a certain set of conditions and, you know, maybe they were playing great and maybe they were playing horribly. That's got to affect your opinion of it. 
you know, I saw that a long time ago, you know, just when I would talk to people about my golf courses, that their impression of it was really tainted by how they played, what the conditions were when they saw it. And, you know, I, I try to build golf courses that are different from day to day. So from the beginning, the whole purpose of this tournament is get people to come and stay and play it two or three times. It almost never happens mm-hmm. anymore. You know, it's like you're there for an afternoon, you're gone, and you're going to see five other places. You know, it's just great for us that people will stay because they get to hang around other people like themselves <laughs> and see it set up differently and play in this this crazy nine-hole match play format where anything can happen. Because if I'd had to pick the winners of this event, you know, if I if I tried to pick who would win every match, I got at least half of them wrong. One of the things that's interesting about golf, you can ne- there are no shoulds in golf, even at the top level. We can't do. It's one of the ironies of golf, Tom, that. The temptation for those who are passionate about course architecture is to run around the world ticking yes, off great is. courses, when in fact, great courses don't reveal themselves unless you take the time to get to know them. Well, I think all really good courses get better and better the more you see them. And, you know, years ago, somebody, you know, I get a lot of flack for the confidential guide. Obviously, most of the courses that I wrote about in the confidential guide, I've only seen once. And I get a lot of flack. How can you do that? How can you rate a golf course that you've only seen once? You didn't even play it. And, I, you know, my, my response is, well, how do you think I build a golf course when I can't hit the shots yet because it's all dirt? You know, we, we can kind of visualize how the thing is going to play, but certainly it's more complicated than what we visualize. And, and when I build a golf course, you know, one of, the reasons, one of the other reasons we have this tournament is to, you know, watch people actually play the golf course and what happens. Because a lot of architects just, they design it and then they're gone and they never come back. And they might keep making the same mistake for years because they think it's working a certain way and they never go see that it's not. But it's not. Did you see anything today on the Gunnamatta course down here that made you think I, s- I saw a lot of, you know, this golf course does change drastically from one day to the next you know i mean the the sixth hole the par five going out yesterday we were playing not quite all the way back and guys you know i get beat but with a six footer for eagle on a hole that i never really thought of as being reachable <laughs> into oh yeah and and the, and yet today you know that hole is one in par by both groups into a little bit of wind i mean it's just you know the driving position changes by 60 or 80 yards. So the members here cannot think they've got the hole figured out. You know, for the, They'll think, well, that's the perfect spot to be to approach that left pin. But then they come out the next day and they can't possibly get to that spot that's the ideal spot. It's like, I can't reach that today. Or I'm not going to lay up with a five iron to get there. So it does. It changes a lot from day to day. And I kind of knew that. We've worked in a lot of windy places and it, it's true at most of them and that's why those courses are ranked so high um they're playable in the wind but they're interesting in the wind they change around we'll come back to some of the the current state of golf and its architecture's place in it there's some interesting questions to think about but for you personally golf has many facets that get people passionate for some it's the rules for some it's the equipment for some it's the golf swing for some it's the architecture why the architecture for you all of those, and I think most of us have dabbled in all of those at some point before we found the part that interested us right. the most. Are you that way? No. I mean, one of the very first courses I played when I was 10 or 11 years old was Harbortown, when it was brand new. And um, 
you know, back in those days, they didn't really have yardage books because nobody played by yardage in 1970. But uh, Mr. Dye's knew a golf writer, Charles Price, who mm-hmm. lived on Hilton Head. Brilliant. So Charlie model. Price was, he was around the golf course during construction quite a bit. And when they finished it, he did a little booklet on the golf course that's pretty much like the yardage book you'd get today, except without all the yardages. Not Just a diagram of the yet. hole and three sentences about how to play it. Second hole. Short par five. There's a tree short and right of the green that will get in your way unless you drive it left off the tee close to the fairway bunker. You know, at 11 years old, I could understand that. I didn't, I wasn't able to hit those shots yet, but I could understand that there was something to golf course architecture. And that golf course got a tremendous amount of attention when it opened for being really different. It was in the top 10 courses of America almost immediately because it was so different than everything else. So, you know, right away, I understood that there was such a thing as golf course architecture. And, and you know, my parents barely played golf at all, but some of their friends did. And some of the people my dad did business with did. So they actually gave, you know, when they, fe- you know, when they played with me when I was 13 years old and I was interested, you know, they gave me some books on it to read up about. The World Atlas of Golf, whenever it was published the first time. You know, I had that memorized by the time I was about 15. <laughs> Um, and no, so I always just fell in with golf course architecture as a thing, but you know, you mentioned all the different ways that people appreciate golf. There's, there's probably a couple of others that I've sort of got a feel for in the last 40 years of working in the business. But one of them that is vastly underappreciated is, um, the emotional aspects of playing golf. You know, you don't, you get excited to play a great golf course and you, you kind of revel in how, what a beautiful place it is. And, and golf is the one place, you know, everything's so politically correct. Now you can't yell, you can't curse out your friends, except on the, the golf, golf course. course, you can get excited and you can show it. Whereas a lot of society now you really can't. And, you know, I think it's a great outlet for people. And that's one of the things that they like so much about playing golf. You know, so many architects are really great players because you know, that's how you get a reputation for, you know, oh, he's a great player, so he knows something about golf, so he must know something about architecture. Something mystical to those of us who aren't good players. Yeah. There's a mystique, isn't there, about good players? Right. We- and, you know, and, and great players would be the first to tell you that only great players should design golf courses. <laughs> of course. For but, large fees as well. But, you know, there's a, I've met a lot of great players – that just cannot relate to why half of us are even out there more than half. They're like, you know, you're no good. Why would, why would, why would this be so fascinating to you? Why do you still go out and try to break 90 or a hundred or whatever? But they, you know, that's their mistake. They think that everybody is grinding all the time and they don't, you know, they don't go out and play for fun. They did when they were kids, but they've lost. Lost Most of them have lost that idea entirely and they just can't relate to that's why all these other people are out there, and that's why they're going to pay me to design a golf course. I 100% agree with you. Tim Liddy wrote something a couple of years ago about golf is struggling to find its place in modern society, it feels like to me. There's a bit of a culture war in golf, which yeah. we can discuss yeah. shortly about. the way. That, but Tim Liddy wrote a fabulous piece about golf not falling for the trap of trying to become what everything else is, quicker, shorter, easier – what golf really should do is luxuriate in what it has, which is time, 
and space and not worry so much about perfect conditioning and the ground game and the imagination and some of those things that you've tapped into. Why doesn't golf, why don't we promote that to people? You know, treat yourself, you know. Golf is me time, isn't it? Why do you want to have it? It half is. as long and it is and so boy there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot he's right there. but there's a lot in there and i'm trying to think where to start um you know i i know the people the most passionate people in scotland i mean golf never would have started if it wasn't something if there weren't long days in scotland that people could could work a full day and then go play 18 holes when they were done. And of course they played in like two hours, play a match or, you know, alternate shot or something that went really fast. And to them, you know, they wouldn't want to be out there all day to do it. So, you know, it hasn't always taken four or five hours (laughs) to go play golf like it does now. Um, But you're right that, you know, I've also heard a lot from like club pros that, they have a hard time getting members in the States to play comps anymore because if they do play the 18 hole round takes four and a half, five hours. And then they've already killed most of the day and they got to get home. They don't even have time to hang around. They say they're better off having, having it nine holes so they can have a beer and hang around with the guys after for a while and enjoy the experience, which is all part of golf. It's not just the course. Instead of just taking all day just to play golf. But there is, you know, the reason the reason everybody's trying to change what golf is is one, it's time pressure. You know, your family, your business, everything is like there's more pressure to do more in a in a limited amount of time, and that that impinges on taking your time and play golf. You know, I mean, I haven't looked at seriously looked at emails or answered messages for four or five days while I've been down here. Look how happy you are. You can't and get the smile off I your am. face. And, you know, I've, I've, I have the luxury that I can do that. Yeah. And, you know, it's a big the, pile of misery waiting for you Monday morning too. You know that you know, as well. It's not that kind of business, <laughs> fortunately. You know, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer where I've always got to be checking on what's going on tomorrow or, you know, playing the stock market and worrying how much it was down today because of the coronavirus. Bless those people, but, you know, just relax a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe it wouldn't go up and down so much. Um, So there's all that. But but the other thing is there's there's this huge battle between the game of golf and the golf business. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Everybody, you know, the game of golf is fine. It hasn't changed. The business of golf puts all this pressure on golf to be certain ways. And, you know, we got to keep developing golf courses, even though a lot of them are failing and we've got to keep flogging new equipment. So we got to fight equipment rules and we've got to, you know, just everything about the golf business is spend more, spend more, spend more, because that's how we make our living. And that is not good for golf. And that's, you know, I was I did an interview with Eric Lang last summer in Scotland and we just played Kilspindy that day and then we went and sat for an interview and I said, you know, all the great golf courses that were built in America in the 1920s, they weren't built for profit. They were built by a bunch of members getting together going, let's do a good golf course. You know, nothing's built like that anymore. Everything now is you know, there's a developer and there's a profit motive whether or not it involves real estate, you know, even if it doesn't involve real estate, 
it's still got to be financially successful and we have to worry about the rankings and we have to worry about what the Raiders are going to think. And we, we have to worry about the food in the clubhouse and what people think of that. And it's just, none of it would have got anything to do with golf. Yeah. It's, is that quickening? Are we seeing a quickening? I, I, I referred to a, this seems to be a culture war developing in golf. There's almost two sides have developed in the last couple of years. You've got those who are on the side of the, let's call it the player. The distance debate is all about athleticism. If there's any problem, change the courses, not the equipment. That's a business. There's a bunch of research and money goes into that. Why do you want to, you know, why do you want to restrict these amazingly talented people? And then there's the other side, which I'm on, and I guess you're on which says that the golf course is underrated as a part of the experience. And if you obsolete the golf course by allowing the equipment to get out of control, you fundamentally change the game in a way that's not to the better of the game. Am I right about that? Do you think that's a culture war? Is it quickening? What do you see as being maybe the ultimate resolution there? Golf's in a... With the Premier Golf League, the Distance Insights Report... We've got nonsense going on with the PGA Tour, the Peter Costas interview the other week about CBS TV. You probably don't need to know about that, but there's there's a lot of stuff going on in golf, it seems. There is. Honestly, there's more of that because there's nothing else to talk about. There's no new courses being built. There's there's nothing else happening, so we got to make up things to make into a controversy. Now, the equipment side, you know, I've been around the golf business for 40 years now. When I first started working for Pete Dye, he had me ghostwrite some stuff for him about they got to do something about the golf ball. You know, guys are hitting driver eight iron into 470-yard par fours. That doesn't make any sense, which is no different than Simpson and McKenzie and Robert Hunter wrote about in the 1920s. So you can look at that one of two ways. Either, God, those architects are always so whiny, (laughs) or, or... we don't really do much about this to control it. And we keep letting manufacturers try to make things a little better so that they can make more money. And, you know, we have some restrictions on it, but it clearly hasn't been enough to stop progress and get to the point where guys just hit it as hard as they freaking can off the tee and hit wedges into greens. And I miss that. You know, what I miss is great players don't have to hit great shots anymore. They rarely are faced with a shot where they've got to do something. An example of that. What do you remember? A great shot that stayed with you that you're not going to see. Again? Oh my god! I've, I've seen so many. You know that the little chip shot that Sevi Ballesteros hit hit between the bunkers at Royal Burkdale when he was 19 years old. Um, there was a, I think it was the Open instead of the PGA at uh, Oakland Hills that um, Chichi Rodriguez was in contention. And la- going into the last green. You know, he was a short hitter, somehow still in contention. Going into the last green, he hit a four forward with about a 40-yard hook into a tiny green with trouble all around. He hit up like 10 feet to give himself a chance to get in the playoff. I mean, guys used to hit shots like that all the time with money on the line. They were so creative. And the good players still are, but their teachers teach it out of them. And they teach them that's, a, that's, not, a, that's not the highest percentage shot. Don't try that. But more than that, unless they're on a golf course that's really firm and it's windy and they've stretched it out just as far as they can, they got a wedge in their hand. And you don't have, you, you can't hit that kind of shots with a wedge in your hand. You know, you just, it's a different game entirely. So you, you only see them hit great shots on really interesting courses and 
And you know, when, after and they've hit a bad shot and they have to recover from something. Yeah. You know, Bubba Watson hooking the ball out of the trees on 10 at Augusta. That's probably the last time I remember somebody doing that. Or, somebody or, that made or, you go, wow. Or Tiger. You know, yeah, Tiger used to time. just hit the ball straight up out of deep rough and make it stop or, you know, hitting that bunker shot at the Canadian Open yeah. over the water. You know, he could hit shots that nobody else could, but he doesn't really get in that many situations where you see that. You haven't got the opportunity. He could do it every day. That's exactly right. And he doesn't have to do it every day. So ironically, it's us, the fans, that miss out, don't we? You've been working with Brooks Kepka on a course, I think, in Houston. So you would have, I'm no doubt, seen him or even more impressive, heard him hit golf balls, which is a pretty amazing thing. We'll never get to see Brooks Kepka decide whether he's going to hit a one-iron or a forward across the water at 15 at Augusta. No, on probably Sunday not. afternoon. And I feel like we, we, we saw Jack do it. We saw Seve do it. We saw Norman do it. We saw guys lay up because <laughs> they didn't like the challenge. We'll never get to see. He's never going to have more than a six iron into that green. No, so as, I mean, so we're, fans, building, so we're building a hole in Houston that, that the 16th hole is a par five, you know, water all the way down the right side and then water in front of the green and water kind of – all the way down the left of the green, but also slightly on the right, so you couldn't bail out. You know, the, the, the objective was, if you're going for this in two, you're taking your life in your hands, you've got to hit it in that narrow area, there's no real place to bail out. And it's like, so how long should that hole be, Brooks? 570 yards. <laughs> for, a, for, for a par five. To make the second make shot. The second shot. A decision. A real decision on whether I should go for that or not. That momentous decision that, Mackenzie talked right. about, or Jones talked about on 13 at a 570 yards, and he's going to go for it nearly all the time, but you know that's, that's the point at which he knows he can go for it most of the time, but some of the other guys can't. Because, of course, I always try to make this point. It's not a knock on the players that the equipment kind of forces them to play the game they do. Today's players are equally talented and could do amazing things with different equipment as well. They could, although, you know, I mean, Mike Clayton loves to take people out and give them a persimmon woodhead and see how they can do it and and it's just cruel isn't it (laughs) well it is because you know most of the young players on tour now everybody under say 35 they didn't grow up with that stuff so they you know if you if you just said okay tomorrow the tour cannot use metal woods anymore you have to go back to persimmon and you know probably half the guys would not be able to adapt and I, you, you, I don't even know that you could predict which ones could. No, no, that's very But true. it's so different. It's a totally different. You know, go from that tiny, sweet spot, and you're, you're kind of gearing down your swing to make sure you don't miss that to ripping away however hard you want um, is a completely different game. And so it's, it's changed the skills that are important. Is that stuff important? Because, of course, for 99.9% of us, as those on the other side of the discussion will tell you, there's no problem. The courses aren't obsolete for us. They're no, they're not. more fun than and, they've ever been. And for, for me as an architect, unless I've got a client who is specifically, we're building this course because we're going to play a tour event on it for the next few years, you know, it's in one year and out the other. You know, when I consulted San Francisco Golf Club and they say, well, Adam Scott was here this summer and he hit driver eight iron on the par five. Shouldn't we lengthen it? I'm like, has your handicap gone up in the last or gone down in the last three years? Because you, <laughs> no. you know, so, you know, why worry about that? Those those guys are great, but they're not paying the freight to be here. And 
you know, 98% of golfers, it's not just the truly elite. Now, I mean, I played with a couple of members out here the last couple of days that getting it 340 yards off the tee. It's, it's, it's amazing. You know, once you are a really good player, how much more distance you get out of the equipment today. It just magnifies the difference between them and everybody else. And there are club players that can do oh, it, but there's not many. No, but there's a couple at most clubs, and yes. there's safety issues with that. That's a whole different discussion. Essentially, and, I but guess, they're also the ones that drive the discussion because everybody looks at them like, yeah, "Of course, isn't this?" You know, they're saying, "Isn't this easy?" And most of the members are like, "Really? No, no, it really isn't." We've kind of got bifurcation by course essentially these days, don't we? With professional golf and the yeah, rest of do. golf, you do. Yeah, yeah, the members at Augusta don't play the Masters tees ever. Mm-hmm. No, they're still playing the same tees they have since 1940. Let's move on from that. I think I interviewed you about 10 years ago, it would have been, 2010, which was a very different time. Probably just come out of the well, – not come out of I'm, I'm a, <laughs> We're still in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the GFC was re- receding a little bit. Then or even before then, this is always a – it's a dumb question, but I think you'll get the point of it. Could you have foreseen back then where you are and where the business is now – you just made a presentation upstairs and people clapping and your name's known around the world. You've got some celebrity. It's not quite a rock star thing, but yourself and Bill and Ben, Gil Hands, David McClay Kidd in Australia, Mike Clayton to an extent. You guys are known entities. Well, Could you have seen in that? Our, in our own little world sure. we are. I mean, Nobody's recognizing you, know, you at the shops in Melbourne? No, I'm shocked. <laughs> you know, every once in a while somebody recognizes me in the airport or something, you know, out of context. And usually it's always oh, wearing a, you know, they wouldn't come up to me except I was wearing a golf shirt with a logo on it. And they figure, oh, it must be, <laughs> that must be him. Yeah. Uh, but no, thank God I don't. You know, I mean, when I was young in college, I wrote Ben Crenshaw a letter asking him for advice on what I should do. And, you know, he's treated me like his kid cousin ever since. And I've sat with Ben just enough, you know, just playing golf or just having lunch. And, you know, he's so polite and nice to everyone like he is to me. But you get interrupted like nine times while you're trying to have lunch. And it's like it amazes me that any of those guys can really put up with that. And the last thing in the world I would want is to really <laughs> be a celebrity. You know, I can handle my own little crowd, but that's a totally different thing. Safe in the bubble upstairs, Tom. We're all on the, the same team. But what about that notion? I know you've done a series of podcasts with Andy for the fried egg, the, the yolk with Doug. You talked about doing a podcast with Eric. The exposure and the discussion about course architecture and those involved in it surely is much it's greater much than it's ever now. been. It's much bigger. And – you know, I, I guess I see some signs of that. It doesn't seem to me that it's changed all that much from one day to the next. But there certainly are more people interested in it now than five or ten years ago. And I, I'm just amazed that anybody will sit and listen to me for an hour, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and when it ends, go, oh, is there more? Is there more? Is there another episode? People are really into it, aren't they? They, they get quite sort of nuts about it. You mentioned Ben Crenshaw there, and you mentioned the name Pete Dye. Who have been the influencers, not even just necessarily directly for you, but who have been the influencers in this area, in, in golf courses. My next question is going to be about how important golf courses are to the game generally, but who have shaped those discussions for you and in your mind? You've obviously been a part of it in the modern context. I think Mike Clayton's done an enormous amount, others as well. Well, obviously, I mean, all of us now benefit from the fact that we all get to see all the great work that was done 80, 90, 100 years ago. So, you know, th- we just start from a much higher knowledge base than they did. They were, they were really experimenting with stuff. Um, you know, now it's the opposite problem. Everybody's ideas are so fixed on what's good and what's bad that, you, you know, you have to 
you know, I have this reputation of really being a rebel, but it's just to fight back against that, that everybody thinks every course should have four par threes and four par fives, and they should, they should play every point on the compass Where's and the yardages should be. Where does that come from? Do you, you know, most sports, the fields are very standardized and, you know, the great, good, really good players like it that way. You know, uh, the great tennis players wouldn't like it if the court were wider somewhere, <laughs> and they, you know it <laughs> didn't work as well for them because they weren't as fast as the uh-huh. young guys anymore. So that's a lot of it. It's just you know good players dictating what works for them and what keeps them good. And you know it's fine. It happens on all levels of golf. I mean, every every country club that I've ever consulted on the women's committee is the club champion and the runner up. And they're the ones who say, "Oh, keep the tees way back," you know, because they win the events from there. It's just everybody has the everybody is really biased by their own limited perspective on their game and how it works for them, and they they don't think about, well, how do we get all these other people around the golf course, and how does it work for that guy? They think, "Well, I'm better than that guy, so I should beat him." So that you know, it's fine the way it is. <laughs> the prism of self interest. While you were talking there, it struck me. Here's a question. If Augusta National was an unknown entity and they hosted a tournament for the very first time this year, what would the players say about it? Greens are too severe. Got to flatten those out. Um, you know, St. Andrews, the same thing. It's like, oh, it's just too different. I don't really understand it. There's too much going on. It should be simpler than that. Um, it, it, so you know, it's, it, it, there's, there's just... there's. I'm not complaining about it, but there is a double standard. You know, when, you know, any of the people that I've hosted here the last two days, if they don't like a hole, they ask me, why do you do that that way? You know, you can't ask Alistair McKenzie why he did it that way. So the old courses you just accept it is that's what's there. That's what I'm supposed to deal with. But on a modern course, it's hard to do that because the architect's giving interviews and saying why he did everything the way he did. But, you know, it's, it's easy to, it's easier to argue with a guy who's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> And turns up on and that you know and that's one reason doing restorations at clubs it's so easy to just even it, whether it's a restoration or not to say it is you know when we were working at Bel Air I'm like you're not arguing with me you're arguing with George Thomas uh-huh. it's a, it's the trump card isn't it it's it is. the ace it is I've got the ace and you, here's the aerial photo that's yep. we're done the discussions over the, the, you know the boardroom at Bel Air they'd have it they had a black and white picture in the boardroom of the golf course in 1928. And every question, I just like point over my shoulder back at that aerial photo, like, that's what I want to do. I don't want to come up with any better ideas than that. I want to do that. You mentioned before pushing back, you know, as a bit of verbal pushing back. I'm not sure whether you listen to Derek Duncan's podcast, Feed the Ball, which is excellent. A couple of your guys have been on there over time. I really like the stuff Derek does. But a question he often asks of people is, what's next? There's been a bit of a sameness Certainly aesthetically about a lot of golf course design the last 10 or 15 oh, years, yeah. hasn't there? That yeah. ruggedness and which you've, you've been a part of. You, which you I've been a big started. part of. And, you know, what is next? Who's the next Mike Strands? The next real well, trailblazer or the young Tom Doak? Well, you know, there's a ton of talented people that have worked mm-hmm. for me, some of whom are working for other architects now, some of whom are still with me. But I've yet to see that any of them are going to just stick their necks out and do something way different. Are but, you? The, but the really problem is that they don't have a chance because they can't because all the cool jobs first they call Bill, then they call me or Gil. 
then they go down the line. They, you know, none of us are that busy, so they don't have to go very far down the line. Where you get the Mike Strances and the Jim Engs of the world is when there's 200 golf courses being built, and certain guys don't have the time for you, and other people are just you know, everybody's desperate to attract attention. You can't just do the same thing everybody else is doing. But when there's only 10 or 20 golf courses being built in a year, it's just the opposite. You know, Mike Kaiser, who was way out on a limb hiring David Kidd and me to do his first two golf courses, now only has three architects that he's, you know, there's a pecking order and it's, you know, everybody would love to be third or fourth on that pecking order, but he has to build a project with four or five golf courses before they get a chance anyway. Um, so it's a, com- it's a comfort zone, isn't there? There for, is. For the business and for the – you know what sells? You know what sells. Make it. And <laughs> so, so who's going to do something different? I feel like I am because I'm in, I'm in the position to do it. You, know? you can take a risk, can't you? I can. I have the luxury of kind of trying to do some different things, and I feel like I have the responsibility to do it. That's what everybody's been talking to me for the last 40 years for is so – so that I'll keep pushing a little bit instead of just falling back on the same things. And I don't, you know, there's not a lot of other people doing that right now. It's, you know, and I, I understand why, you know, it's the business. If you're worried about the business, it's fine. It's all business I've, I've, game thing again, isn't it? Yes. And, and I've, that's never been why I've done it. You know, I just, I turn down jobs for lots of money all the time because it's just, uh, that's not somewhere I want to work or, I just don't. I don't know what I do with that piece of land. That's just not interesting. But I find what what would turn if someone brings you up something what, different. What, what pushes your buttons? Something different. You did the reversible course in I forget what state. It's Forest Dunes. Forest Dunes. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a concept. You know, there's there's a few things like that that I'm not going to tell you every one of them here. But there's a few things like that that I've been carrying around my brain for 20 years. This is a great concept for something when I find the right client or the right piece of ground to do it. So the reversible course was one, you know, the, the par 68 thing that we're going to do for Sand Valley. That's something, you know, ever since I saw Swinley Forest, it's like, why couldn't you have this in America? But, you know, you come back and everybody wants it to be 7,200 yards long and a championship golf course. That's why. And, you know, only, you know, luckily for me, I attract the kind of clients that would be the only ones to listen to, you know, maybe we could do something like that. Um, but the, Tom, the Thomas course within a course is always fascinating. It feels like if that idea was teased out by more courses, you could be a member at a club that essentially had four different golf courses and park in the same spot in the car park right. every week, and nobody's right. ever adopted it. It just seems no. I mean, you know, something like that relies a lot on the setup and how it's managed. You know, and and honestly. It's too confusing for most people. I mean, you know, to to their credit at Forest Dunes, the, you know, moving the tee markers from one side of the green to the other side of the green to switch the golf course around the same. I mean, it's hard to even know. You tell a guy to go out to the sixth green, and it's like, which way? <laughs> which which <six? laughs> you know, we, right. we did have to, when we were building it, we had to say, okay, this way is the way we're going to talk about it so we don't have to keep yeah. clarifying what we mean everywhere we go. Um But, yeah, I mean, it's just – and, you know, Mike Kaiser would say, too confusing for the guests. You know, as interesting as that sounds, they want to know – they want to play the best course. 
the, the way that it set up the best. Right, which one's They're the paying best? top dollar. Yeah. They want it set up the perfect way. That was the one fear at the loop. If, the, if everybody thinks the red course is better than the black course or vice versa, then if there's too many people that think it's the red, then they'll want to play the red. They'll show up on Tuesday and it's the black, and they'll be like, no, I want to play the red. So I know these twins get separated because... Right. And that's what happened in St. Andrews. I mean, they, they, they yeah. really used to play it the other way around fairly often until the road hole got famous and the, the 11th hole got famous. And then it's like, what do you mean we're not playing the road hole? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we came all this way just for that. How important is architecture? How, how important is it to plug into the rest of the golf stuff, including the business, which is important? You and I both make our living out of golf, and we like to rag on the business, and that's as it should be, but we're a part of it as well. How important is architecture to the broader business? Is better architecture at all levels better for the game, even if those who are playing it don't appreciate it, don't understand why, or does it not matter as much as some of us think if municipal golf is better designed will golf be healthier to answer your last question first definitely if you know if public access golf courses are better and more interesting you'll keep people's attention and the most important part of that is playability you know all the angles and different stuff that we all talk about to some extent, they only come into play when you're good enough to hit to hit, hit it kind of where you want to. But by the same token, like the average woman golfer who can't hit it more than 125 yards can also hit it through that door from 75 yards away. So they really can aim and go where they want to go. And they really they have to play the strategy of the golf course because any hazard that they have to carry is a potential disaster for them and they have to tack their way around and when you've got too many features out there for them to tack their way around they hate it and if there's nothing for them to do but you know hit it four times a hundred yards at a time and there's never anything to try to steer it through it's boring as hell that's what you know courses can't be boring if people if they're boring people will quit and some of that's conditioning and some of that's architecture Conditioning gets most of the focus, doesn't it, from people? And usually golfers. A nice piece of grass is seen as much more important than an interesting golf hole on a less nice piece of grass. I'm not sure what you do about that. Do we have a responsibility to try to educate? Because, of course, you sound condescending when you try to educate. Yeah, yeah. if you really have to explain why your course is so good to everybody, that's a losing (laughs) battle. (laughs) You see it a lot in the business because everybody is writing and trying to promote what they've done, but... You know, at some point, you've got to be confident to let people go out there and play it and figure it out, and that they're that they're ex- that they're engaged enough by it to want to figure it out. And what about people who don't like it? You would come across people from time to time who tell you golf course architecture is boring, not interested. Can you be a golfer and genuinely be uninterested in architecture? Yes, you can. I mean, a lot of the people I know, the good players I know, who are really interested in architecture now. Have make no bones about the fact that when they were 25, 30, 40 years old and a really competitive player, they didn't think about it at all and they didn't want to because it was a distraction from playing well. You know, just like we talked about Kepka and those guys never having to think about what they do. You know, the good players, they just want to figure out what is the best way for me to play this hole and then nothing else. And as long as they can keep hitting the ball where they want to hit the ball, you know, 
I mean, the, the bad side of that is that they all think that there's only one best way to play the hole. You know, the great thing about Brooks is that he wants it to be different from one day to the next. He says the old course is his favorite course for exactly that reason. You can't just say, okay, this is the way I'm going to tackle this hole for four days in a row. The wind changes or the pin placement changes, and it's drastically different. And if you, you know, you just pull your drive 20 yards offline, you can't be thinking about going after the pin now. You know, and there's not a lot of modern courses that are that complicated to make somebody think like that. TPC hasn't done a great job of that, has they? As a, have, have they as a network of no? I mean, places you know, the original had yes. more difficult <laughs> pin placements on every green, and it yeah. wasn't the same shot into the green all the time. But they softened that about four times since I first saw it. He's an intriguing character, Kepter, isn't he? And he becomes more intriguing with each passing year. He's the only one who's called Patrick Reed out that I can think of, just straight out. He says what he thinks. I'm not a huge fan of the way he plays the game. It doesn't. I don't find it that entertaining, which is ridiculous because it's incredible to watch. It's amazing. Incredible to watch. It's an amazing golf game. But those characters, those voices are important, aren't they? At a time like, as we discussed, if there is a culture war in golf, strong voices are important, aren't they? Ones that come with gravity. Yeah. He's one that comes with gravity. Yes, and I think one of the reasons I think I got along so well with him is that you know, he feels some responsibility now to talk about that stuff a little bit that four or five years ago, it wasn't that he didn't think the same things, but it wasn't his place then. And now it is. He was here in the pecking right. order. Now he's here. Yeah. You can't. Yes. When you're number 50 in the world, nobody cares what, you know, nobody cares about what you think when you're number one, you know, everybody wants to know. And that's the time to say it. He's quite blunt. You can be quite blunt sometimes. Is that part of the appeal? the two of you and have your discussions been interesting at well we, we haven't or? spent a lot of time together but i think we both come with the understanding that the other person says what they have on their mind and that's nothing to be offended about you know you know i know that things i've written years ago or whatever rub people the wrong way and it's just like you can't spend your life worrying about that stuff and you know i i mean the one thing that i will the that I say to disarm people is something that Pete Dye said to me 35 years ago. He's like, every single thing in golf is a matter of opinion. Whether a golf course is good or not, we could disagree and we could argue about it for days and days and days and neither one of us is going to be right. You know, he said, but that's not, it's not just golf course architecture. There is no right way to swing a golf club. There is no right way to grow grass. There is no right way to do any of this. You know, so, you know, that's one of the interesting things about it. That's why people can sit and talk about it all day and argue so much and then get up the next day and go back at it again. Yeah. The discussion about Wimbledon versus Roland Garros versus Flushing Meadow is a pretty short one, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> so. Yeah, I guess so. The discussion about Augusta and Sinet, they go on for years and decades and, and for generations. Let's start to wind it up because I know that you're busy. What's a perfect day look like for Tom Doak now? And how might that have been different 30 years ago? Hmm. Well, sometimes for me, a perfect day is just being a day off at home without jet lag. <laughs> Lying on the couch, uh, not thinking or doing anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm really fortunate to get to do my work in beautiful places and kind of pick the places that I work. So wherever I am, whether I'm in Australia or New Zealand or Ireland or the States, you know, I'm probably at some place I'm really engaged by. Uh, you know, I work with a bunch of people that I have a lot of fun with. 
Um, there's two parts of the work that are very different from each other that I couldn't, I don't have a favorite between the two. You know, one is trying to figure out the puzzle of where the holes go. You know, you just got this raw piece of land and a map and you wander around for days trying to figure it out and you don't, there's nobody to tell you you're right when you're done. You know, it's just like, I think this is the best one I can come up with. Um, and you try to get a little feedback from the client, from the other guys that are going to work on it. And then, but then, and you know, I'm just, I've been working on a book about that just lately, but, but then the other half of it is, you know, once you, you know, once we drew the plan for the national, I, I, there's, there was a big poster board in the locker room of our plans for every hall with, with a big disclaimer on the side of every single one of them. This is conceptual and it might change. You can't hold us to it at all. Um, but I, you know, I took it upstairs last night to let everybody look at it after they play the golf course to see how different it was. Because once we're out there building the golf course, as Pete Dye said, if I just wanted it to be like I drew on the plans, I wouldn't have to be here so much. <laughs> just but if I'm going to be here, I might as well try to make it better. Yeah. And I've got, it's not just me, it's like a half a dozen guys working on the crew trying to make it better every day. And that's really fun. You know, the little detail stuff. Of what's that green going to really be like? And, you know, do we really want it to tilt away quite that much? Or can't we build that up a little bit? You know, a lot of times I'm editing that. I don't, you know, sometimes I'll have a very specific idea of what I want the green to be like. Sometimes I'll just say, you know, just make it hard to get to from the right. And I'll come and see what you did. And we'll edit it from there. Um, so, you know, every time I come back, we're working on four or five more holes and, you know, they'll be half done before I get here. And some of them might be done to a plan and some of them they might have just, you know, gone way right of where I wanted them to. But, you know, I've, I empower my guys to do that because they have really good eyes too. Mm. Is there one element of a golf course that's more important? Others are greens more important than tee shot questions, uh, second greens shots? Are, greens, greens. You know, it's the if business the, green, end, if the greens it? have some contour and some imagination to them, that that dictates everything else. That that's where you want to be in the fairway. That's how you want to hit the tee shot. That's everything. So yeah, I spend most of my time on site looking at greens and kind of you know not so much putting recovery shots like approach shots, but especially recovery shots. Like to me, every green you walk up on you there should be a better place to miss it and a worse place to miss it. Cause otherwise you're just going to, if it doesn't matter which side you miss on, you're just going to aim right at the flag. That's pretty dull. But if, if you know that being above the hole is bad and you better keep it below the hole, then how far below the hole you have to play, you have to really think about, and that's the better player can get a, can aim a little closer without going past. Can outthink his opponent. Two people of equal execution, one can outthink the other if they're well. Smart. But it's not only yes, but then but then you know Tiger Woods can hit that eight iron or wedge or whatever inside a smaller circle than most other tour pros, so he can aim closer without missing the place. You know. They think that's how they think of it. It's like putting a circle template for their landing area. And like now they don't strategize based on where the fairway bunkers are because they're going to hit on the green out of a fairway bunker anyway. Unless it's a deep pot bunker in Scotland, they think nothing of those. They're just like keeping the water hazard and the OB and the trees to where they would only ever miss over there 1% of the time. 
It's a totally different way to think your way around a golf course because you can hit the shots where you want. Last couple to finish up. One that got away. Can you think of a course that... And I asked this question partly because I interviewed Bob Harrison a couple of weeks ago and he still furrowed his brow and he said to me, you know that we could have got Barnburgle Jews before Doak and Clayton. And I asked him the one got away question and he said, yeah, that's one that got away. He said, in fact, that's a few that got away right there. Have you, have you got a one that got away? Uh, well, in the back of my routing book that I'm working on, I, I'm showing plans for a few golf courses that we never got to build for whatever reason. And they're all different reasons. You know, a couple of them, somebody else got the job. A couple of them, it just hasn't, didn't ever happen or the deal fell apart. Or, they're not and a then, thing to do, are they? It's very easy for a golf course project to fall over. Because oh, yeah. No, the, big I mean, there, was, there was one in Ireland years ago that, you know, it was a piece of land that Henry Longhurst had written about as a great piece of land for a golf course in a book in like the 1940s. And it's still sitting there to this day, and they just can't get the permissions to do it, or the families that own it in common can't agree on what they're going to do. Bill Cor and I spent a little time on it 10 or 15 years ago. Beautiful piece of land for golf. Still hasn't happened, probably never will with the, the environmental restrictions in the EU now. Um, for me, you're like, a lot of people would say if, you know, if I was competitive like Bob, I would say Aaron Hills because I did a plan for that site for a, for a different client. I was signed up to do the job and they just couldn't get, they had to like sign up members to raise the money. They didn't have the money in hand, couldn't do it just based on a plan by some unknown young golf course architect in the 90s. Uh, but actually, no, there's like, there's a few sites that I've seen, some of which I've got a plan for and some of which I haven't bothered yet, but I just think, wow, this would be a perfect place to do a golf course. And, you know, now what I'm actually working on is, you know, trying to be able to find the capital so I can do some of those kinds of projects so I can find the, the person that's going to do it instead of having to wait for the phone call for it to happen. But, you know, one of the reasons I wound up doing Barnboogle Dunes is because I was willing to do it for peanuts just because I really wanted to build a golf course there. And, you know, that's ultimately when it was Richard's call about who to use. It's like, well, Tom's working with us and he's not doing it for the money. And that made a difference. But the, if the one of all the courses that are in the back of that book there's land for a second course at Cape Kidnappers down in the valley away from the first golf course. I would love to build that golf course. I, I, I've told multiple people, yeah, when I retire, I'll just go try to do that on my own. <laughs> That'll be your project. <laughs> yep. Interesting, you once wrote that you'd be prepared to put your money where your mouth is on a golf course. That golf course designers don't take enough responsibility for right. the business success of the products that they create. That's an interesting sort of a stance. Last one. You mentioned earlier that you've got a couple of things in your mind that are different and interesting and you're just waiting for someone to offer them. Without giving it away, what would a potential client who might be listening, what would be a keyword they might mention that might get you interested that touches on one of those in case they want to email you, Tom? You never know who listens to yeah. these things. Well... I mean, one that's going to come up a lot more in the next few years, I think, is, you know, how about we have almost no bunkers? The fewer bunkers, the better. Our Houston course has 19 bunkers. Wow. The sheep ranch, I've heard that Bill and Ben are working on, is going to have none or almost yeah, none sort of because, because it's, you know, it's a super windy place and it's not sandy underneath. And, you know, Why would you put you? sand in, it'll just all blow away right away. Um you know, I've got a site in California that has has rock outcroppings, it has streams, it has 
beautiful oak trees. It's got a ton of things that are sort of obstacles and hazards. So why would you put 50 bunkers in there too? And, you know, I mean, honestly, I'd love to do none, but I don't think it'll be none because there's some places in like environmental buffers that I think, you know, being in the bunker is better than being in a bunch of grass that they can't mow for environmental reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think we'll probably have a few, but not many. And, you know, that's kind of a barrier. And, you know, one of the barriers, that same course, which I've done a couple of times before, it's going to start at a resort up on the top of a hill and it's going to finish two miles away at another resort in the bottom of the valley. Uh, so it's not, it's more golf on a string instead oh, of, instead of, you don't start and come back to a central coming back to the clubhouse, oh, okay. which, you know, that's, that's, that, that's that not what a golf club needs at no, all. No, so no, it's no. a very limited application, but I think it's going to have an entirely different visual impression. You know, you're just, you're playing through nature on both sides and you're not really looking at other golf holes at all. Yeah, make it reversible. Now you've really got something. I don't think they want to play up there all that much. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Doak, been fabulous of you to take the time. We really appreciate it. Best of luck in the future. And thanks for keep coming down to Australia. You've made a fabulous contribution down here. We do appreciate it. We love Australia. We'll come back. If it wasn't so far away, Tom, you'd be here all the time. I've been here 25 or 30 times already. <laughs> <laughs> and we've loved every one of them. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for episode 15, and I'm sure that many of you, like me, are intrigued to see what Tom does next. He certainly hinted there that there might be some interesting stuff on the horizon. We'll keep an eye on all that to see what unfolds. But in the meantime, I hope you can join me for our next episode when we feature our second couples interview of the series, a catch-up with LPGA star Christina Kim and her Kiwi boyfriend, Duncan French. Is that how you met? Is that how it started? Did you... Caddy for her and then... No. I saw him from a far away distance when he was at the beer garden in Evian and I said, <sighs> done. I don't believe in love at first sight. It's uh-huh. it's complete bollocks. There's no such... Except there's this one time in history. There's one time in history. There's one time in history. I mastered the game and then I fell in love. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is that really what happened? Because I, yeah. I, I can see the appeal for Duncan here, but I'm looking at Christian and someone here is punching down and it's not him. No. <laughs> yeah, no, you guys were both wrong. That's next time on The Thing About Golf.